Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of Light and the Dark, an unofficial Star Wars podcast about one man's hyperspace journey through the entirety of Star Wars canon, hopefully within the span of one year. I'm your host, filling in this week on the Sandcrawler as Jawa number 27, Dan McGillan. First up, I thought I'd go ahead and cover the quote of the week from last week. That's from uh, episode 15 of this podcast. Uh, that would be, the quote is from Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens. And the quote is, I got a bad feeling about this. Do you know who says it? If you guessed Han Solo, you are correct. There was no guess uh, made and sent in this week, so I uh, continue on from there. Uh, this week's quote of the week, though, I thought I'd do something a little bit different. Uh, and that is from a character in the novel Ahsoka. And the quote was, she had a bad feeling about this. Do you know who said it? Or more accurately, do you know who thought it? Drop me a line at danatlightinthedark.com or leave a comment on the uh, entry for the Ahsoka novel in the uh, Project Spreadsheet. And if you're right, I will let everyone know your name on the next episode. So first up, um, let's let's get out of the way the the obvious uh, thing. Um, for the few of you that are actually following this really closely at the moment, uh, you will notice that I skipped a week. So why is that? Um, in short, in addition to having a really short week the previous week before where I don't believe I finished anything, if I remember correctly, I had a second week where I also didn't finish anything. And I did go ahead and record uh, last week. But I really wasn't happy with how it turned out. It was very short, which is understandable since I didn't have a lot to talk about. And I just decided in the end it wasn't worth publishing and I was just going to take a week off, try and do better, and actually get through some more content. And so, in fact, here we are. So uh, with that, uh, I'm back, rested, rejuvenated, back on the project. Uh, still haven't managed to finish that book, though. Still haven't finished the uh, novelization of Rogue One, although I am making progress. When I do sit down and read it, I do make some serious page count uh, progress. So hopefully very soon it'll be done. Um, anyway, uh, going forward with uh, this week's project update. So as of right now, where I stand, I am at 999 items completed within canon. Obviously, that means the very next thing I finish uh, will be the, uh, the thousandth, which is kind of a, a pretty big benchmark. Now, my current goal for right now at this point in the project should be about 901 items. So I'm ahead at the moment by about 28 days. Um, so having said that, a uh, couple I went back and kind of went through everything to see where things stood. So out of everything that's left, um, I have 251 items that have been released up to this point that are remaining in, in canon for me to work through. And 37 items that I know about, some of which will break into more items as they release, such as The Mandalorian Season 2. Uh, but I don't know the, the episode count for that yet. So it's currently one item. It'll turn into more once it's released. <clears throat> in any case, uh, so that's that's where I am. Uh, and that breaks down into about 88 comics, uh, 30 junior novels and junior readers, 22 actual novels, one item marked as promotional materials, 15 short stories, 59 TV episodes, 9 video games, and 26 young readers. So, uh, still quite a bit of reading to do. That is going to be a lot of what is left in the project, is video games and novels. 
um, that other stuff I'm still working through and trying to keep moving uh, just just to continue to make some progress uh, that can that can be made. Obviously, at some point, I'm going to run out of all that stuff. Um, in any case, uh, let's let's talk about what I actually did this week. So first up is uh, a lot of comics. The very very heavy comic week this week, um, just because of where where I was in, in the uh, sequence of things. Of course, there's a big uh, desert of novels laying behind me that are you know at least 100 150 pages long. So including some of the youth novels, but there's a, there's a large graveyard behind me of novels and youth novels that have not been uh, read yet. Uh, but you know, only doing one of those types of things at a time. And the fact that I'm currently still working on Rogue One, um, those are still sitting there. They're still waiting. They'll be, I'll be working through this again in order as I get, uh, Rogue One done, I'll start on the next one on the next one, etc. Anyway, as far as stuff after the novels, uh, the next thing that isn't one, uh, ended up being uh, the comic story Sabotage, which is in uh, Poe Dameron number one. Um, speaking of Poe Dameron number one, I read uh, all of issues one through 25 and annual one and two of the Poe Dameron comic. Uh, it's a, functions as a setup prior to The Force Awakens to kind of give you some background on his character and what he's about. Uh, it's a fairly, fairly good... Uh, fairly good comic it definitely introduces the concept that um the princess leia sees more of him than an ace pilot he thinks of himself as just a hotshot ace pilot but uh princess leia thinks of him as more and is trying to mold him into that and that becomes a major subplot um particularly in uh episode eight um, but i feel like having this back knowledge and story uh from from these comics makes it more clear what it is she sees in him and what she's hoping for for him and how she's attempting to help him grow into that the thing that she knows that, that they'll need. And in fact, she even mentions the fact that, you know, she will not be around forever. Um, a, th- a fact that we're all sad about still. Um, the, the passing, of course, of uh, Princess Leia. Or, I mean, you know, obviously... <laughs> Or really, I mean, Carrie Fisher, the passing of Carrie Fisher, and, and with her, Princess Leia. Um, I know it's a thing that, uh, even even in the more contentious areas of the fandom that complain about a lot of the stuff that's been done more recently, um, they still they still care for Carrie Fisher and are sad that she's gone. Um, and that seems to be pretty universal throughout the Star Wars community. Um, at this point, it's been a while. But it is what it is, and she is, in fact, gone, as, as her character predicted. Um, so continuing on from there, uh, so it's Sabotage, Poe Dameron, 1 through 25, and the annual 1 and 2. We've got uh, Star Wars, the 2020 Star Wars series, when it rebooted, number 3, uh, finally came out on uh, Marvel Unlimited. Again, there's this there's a huge clump of like 20 or 30 comics now that have come out that are not yet available on Marvel Unlimited because of the the six-month window thing is going on. Um, We also have uh, the short book of short stories called Star Wars The Force Awakens, stories from a galaxy far, far away. I read the last four stories that are in that book that I had not yet read uh, this week. And then as far as comics continue, we have Age of Resistance, Rose Tico number one, and Star Wars Special C-3PO number one. 
uh, the story of which uh, in the Star Wars special C-3PO is retold in a previously enjoyed work. In that's a there's like a five minutes Star Wars stories version of it as well. Um, I like the version in the C-3PO one uh, comic better. I think there's there's more to it. There's more substance to it, um, and the poignancy of of what that story tries to tell. And I, w- I won't get too deep into it. It's an explanation of why C-3PO has a red arm in, uh, in the force awakens. So, uh, you know, but without getting into the details of the actual, what actually happens into the, in the comic, it's, it's a story that makes you think a bit, which is really nice. So that's, uh, so everything I mentioned so far, except for the, of course, the four short stories in the Star Wars Force Awakens stories from a galaxy far, far away. Everything so far is a comic, but they're, those are all the Marvel comics. Then we have the IDW comics. Um, specifically, we have, uh, the Star Wars Forces of Destiny Rose and Page comic, which was contained in a, an omnibus version of like five different comics as well. So that's the, that's how I'm reading it. It was also released as an orig- initial issue. I think it was issue number three of the Star Wars Forces of Destiny collection. Um, then we have the story, The Better the Devil You Know, parts one and two, which are in Star Wars Adventures number one and two, uh, the first two Star Wars Adventures comics. Um, and the Star Wars Adventures story... An Unlikely Friendship, which is from Star Wars Adventures number 15. So that gets us 39 of the 40 things I did this week. Um, The 40th one is I have finally got to the point where we have found Star Wars Resistance. So I have very mixed feelings so far about Star Wars Resistance, and I am only an episode in. And I'm hoping that some of how I think about it and feel about it is going to change over time. So rather than say what I think at this point, I'm going to leave it for this week. Um, I obviously have, uh, I I believe there's a total of 40 episodes of the series, plus something like 10 or 12 mini episodes as well. So there's a fair amount of Star Wars resistance, not as much as the other other animated series, um, any of them. But still, enough of them that there will be there will be some. So uh, I will inevitably, based on where I am in the, in the timeline, uh, have more to say on this next week once I've gotten through several more episodes. Um, uh, and we'll leave it at that for now. Um, I'm I'm really hopeful that it, that it ends up being, you know, on the same level that I've come to expect uh, of these these specific type of animated shows. Um, I guess we'll see. So anyway, that that's uh, the forty items I did this week. Uh, obviously, got got a little bit of a, a little bit kept. I kind of kept up and made up for some of my uh, lacking in the past few weeks. Um, not all of it, but that's okay. I'm still you know about four weeks ahead, and that is a good thing. Um, I have more to do, obviously, and uh, like I said, I, I ran through that list of what's left. I mean, there is there is stuff to do that's shorter still, but I'm that that well is going to dry up sooner rather than later, and that's okay. I mean, we still have uh, uh, three months plus to finish this project uh, to get it done this year, and then of course, you know, the longer it takes me to do that, the more things will appear in canon. Um, based on timing at this point, I mean, there are things that I know, like uh, the Mandalorian, the new season of that. 
I don't know. I, I'm, I'm guessing that they're going to dribble those episodes out one at a time like they did the previous season. So um, that will take up the rest of the year or close to it, probably, uh, with those new ones coming out. Um, and likewise, uh, the the uh, Empire Strikes Back version of uh, uh, Tales from a Different Point of View, or I, that's not the that's not the correct title, but the diff, you know 40, 40 years since uh, Empire Strikes Back, forty short stories that that collection that they're doing. Um, that comes out in October in about a month, so uh, that'll be another one that adds a whole bunch of items to the list, and and it will, you know, that will mean I have all those items to get done as well, um, and that's okay. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. There's actually uh, a book that came out very recently that's much, much earlier in the timeline. Um, I haven't quite decided if I'm going to jump back to that one immediately after I finish uh, the book I'm reading now or not. Um Kind of just trying to see how I feel about it. I, I do believe after the uh, Rogue One, there are a few younger novels that are left or that are next if I don't jump backwards. So I may I may take the tack of, of actually doing those shorter, younger, younger novels, a couple of those just to get those uh, off the list. And, and, you know, those will be quicker wins. Uh, compared to the, the lengthiness of uh, something like the Rogue One novelization. So anyway, that's uh, Project Project Progress for this week. Um, next up, I actually have an interview segment, um, and I'm, I'm going to be splitting this into two, two different parts, like, as is the tradition. If, if the person I talk to runs too much longer than, you know, half an hour or so, uh, I, do, I do like to split it up just to kind of, you know, be give something nice for the next couple episodes instead of a really long one to watch to listen to, you know, now. But in any case, uh, it's an interview with my friend Tika England. Um, she is a professional customer. She does a lot of uh, work in theater. And uh, we're going to be talking about a book that uh, she and I both have looked at and, and run through. She has read more thoroughly than I have. I, I did read it, but not the whole, not every word of the book at this point. Uh, and it, you might ask yourself, so, so why, so why did you pick this? And it's primarily because it was an opportunity to get Tika on the show. Um, she's somebody that has, has a background that I think is interesting, a perspective on Star Wars. That's a little interesting. She's, she's younger than most of the people that I've had on so far for interviews. Um, or I should say she's younger than all of them and younger than me by a little bit. So, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to get some, some different thoughts and different views on things. Um, so that, that was, and, and then additionally, it's just an interesting book. Um, it's, you know, costumes from the, uh, original trilogy. So seeing what they did and how they accomplished it and hearing the stories of this is how we managed this. And this is, you know, here's the art that we originally worked from. I think all that's really interesting. So anyway, without further ado, let me, uh, jump right into the intro of Tika for her interview. Well, here today with us, we have Tika England. Uh, she is self-described as a costume technician. Uh, from her bio, she actually says, Tika England is an academic over overachiever with history degrees from the University of Puget Sound and Penn State and an MFA in costume production from Boston University. Her focus from an early age has been on historic and folk costume, but she also loves to work in uncommon and difficult materials and will never shy away from a rhinestone. She has worked wardrobe with Blue Man Group, Lyric Theater of Oklahoma, and ATSE Local 112. She has made puppets with Michael Curry Designs and been on costume construction crews at the Seattle Opera, American Repertory Theater, the Boston University Opera Institute, uh, Lake Tahoe Shakespeare Festival, and the Idaho Shakespeare Festival. She was the shop manager 
Lee Draper, and an occasional designer at Butler University, the professional draper at the University of Oklahoma, and is currently the cutter draper at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, working on dance theater, musical theater, and opera, and is trying to complete a first draft of a tutu construction textbook. So uh, you might be wondering, why would I bring someone with this background on the show? And the answer is actually this. Uh, there was a book called Star Wars Costumes, the original trilogy, that uh, while not actually telling a story in Star Wars canon, was very interesting. And I happen to actually already know Tika through uh, through other ways. And uh, we had talked for a while about, well, what, you know, what could she what could she do to come on the show? And we decided this would be a great way to do it. So uh, with with that, I'd like to welcome Tika to the show. Hello. It's great to be here. Long Thank time you. listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously, um, we've talked uh, it, it, just from your bio there a little bit about kind of your your costuming and mm. uh, construction chops. Um, the other thing that I, I like to ask everyone that comes on the show uh, is a, a question to kind of center where they where they uh, fall in relation to Star Wars. So the the question is this: What does Star Wars mean to you? It a lot, um, actually. And it's, it's interesting because the way I came to Star Wars, obviously I've listened to a couple of the other podcasts. So I know most people are kind of like the way I met Star Wars. Uh, and I came to it sort of backwards in a lot of ways in that I was a third, fourth grader-ish, somewhere in that range, um, obsessed with the space program. Like anything you wanted to tell me had to be couched in terms of NASA. Like I was going to be an astronaut. I was going to go to space. Like this was just a thing that was going to happen. Um, so obsessed with the space program. Uh, and I also have ADD or ADHD, whichever one we're calling it now. So I get that like target fixation brain. So like there's nothing in my life that was not the United States space program. Uh, and for some reason, my father decided that at some point in there, this was the ideal time to introduce his daughter to Star Wars. And all of a sudden I went from American space program to I need to know everything about Star Wars right now. All of it. Give me all the information. Um, and if I remember correctly, sort of that transition to Star Wars happened in about fifth grade, which set me up to be in, I think, ninth grade. No, not ninth grade. That would have made me a freshman. I think it was eighth grade when the new trilogy came out. Um, and I'm young enough that the new, the quote unquote, the new trilogy, the the forbidden films, the ones we don't talk about anymore, the first three, um, are sort of my Star Wars. And it was interesting because sort of what's, what Star Wars means to me is this was my first kind of epic movie. And this was the first time that I think I saw kind of, or saw and realized costumes on that big a scale. Um, and my mother still says like she's got every sketchbook that I ever had and at some point in there I had started you know like carrying around little sketchbooks and sketchbooks sketchbooks um and drawing out sort of quote-unquote like new Princess Leia costumes and sort of like new you know background characters and like these were you know the costumes of the people that like might also live on the world with the Ewoks uh so there's a lot of I think a lot of that that kind of pushed me towards costumes, even though it took me a while to actually get there. <laughs> um, and and I think it's funny too because it's not necessarily costumes, but makeup. In middle school, as the 
the Phantom Menace was coming out, I was, <laughs> this is, you can just imagine what type of middle schooler I was. Obviously Dan knows me, but then like this, this story sort of gives up what kind of middle schooler I was too. There was an entire year, I think calendar, almost calendar year in which I wore the Queen Amidala, like red lipstick, like stripe down the bottom lip to school every day. And people were just like, yeah, I don't know. That's what she does. <laughs> <laughs> I had not heard that story before. That's awesome. Now, yep, did you do the, the white pancake makeup with it? Or, I didn't or do just the white the... pancake. Some days I would do like the red dots on the cheek and just in lipstick, but I never quit, committed to the pan. I mean, I'm pale enough already. I didn't need to commit entirely to the pancake. But that was, you can imagine I was, I was really popular in middle school. <laughs> Okay, so that's that's an interesting perspective that, that that you came to things, you know, with with the the prequel trilogy as your kind of your your baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, is that the extent of your involvement in the series? Or you know, have you have you just followed the movies? Do you follow any of the extended universe stuff, both so, pre and post reset? So I was mostly pre reset, um, and that I followed. Like obviously, I followed what we're calling four five and six now and i think i watched those when i was young i watched those it was they used to show them on tnt every weekend or something and anytime i would go buy one it would be like nope i'll stop we're watching this now um and i had like a good obsessive add kid i had you know as many books as i could get my hands on whether they were uh novels or the sort of not the how-to books but like the encyclopedia type books or anything like that so i've read i read pre-reset i think most of everything that was out before phantom menace happened um so i think the last the last podcast i managed to listen to i think you guys were talking about shadows of the empire and i was like yep i remember that i had an autographed copy of that book um and sort of in that same generation i loved the courtship of princess leia um which tells the story of i think it's between it's either just post jedi or between empire and jedi i think it's just post jedi um and i think that's the first book in which dathomir shows up and now going back and playing oh the video game that just came out fallen empire and they put you on dathomir i'm like this is absolutely nothing like i was imagining when i was reading this book um and i think i read all of the thrawn trilogy and i read all of the um oh the ones of the trilogy with like the maw and the death crusher where han and leia had the three kids um and i i actually have to say like my i think my favorite book of that period was the one splinters of the mind eye written by alan dean foster i read it like a billion times um and it's a really interesting book because it came out just post new hope uh and it was clear at that point that no one either no one knew or no one had told alan dean foster that luke and leia were going to be siblings so there's this weird sort of like romance that happens between them where they get stuck on this mining world and have to figure out how to get away but there's this sort of like forbidden romance that happens and it's going back and reading it now like knowing oh they're siblings you're like this is a little creepy but (laughs) sort of before that happened it was actually like i mean for what it is it's a pretty gosh darn written movie tie-in book (laughs) just with this creepy side to it um so i did i did a lot of the novelizations i did a lot of the books i did a lot of the you know like everything you need to know about x books um 
I've watched some of the mod of the the more modern stuff, the like the cartoon series. I haven't gotten to Rebels. I've been mostly in the one with Ahsoka, um, and I think I'm into like season four with that. But it somehow doesn't like grab me the same way. Uh, I have currently watched all of Mandalorian, and I'm absolutely like champing at the bit to get more. <laughs> um, and I've played a couple of the video games, most of them not all the way through, because I had this. I have this bad habit of like half finishing video games and then walking away from them. So I did a fair amount of uh, Knights of the Old Republic. I think I got halfway through one and then I got sort of halfway through two. Uh, and I have a couple of friends and I now who occasionally will play Star Wars Battlefront. And every time I complain absolutely vociferously that like the new Battlefront is nothing like the old Battlefront because the old Battlefront was good and the new one is just a bunch of spoiled people with fast computers running around killing you before you can do anything. Um, but this is sort of a, a common problem with my friends and I is that we want to kill each other. We don't want other people to kill us. <laughs> right, right. No, and that's actually with the with the first of the two modern Battlefront games. That's the thing I'm running into is I don't really want to play online with strangers. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not fun. Like, they're killing me. I'm not killing you. <laughs> Um, so some of the video games, but pretty much, pretty much as Phantom Menace came out, I think I read a couple of the novelizations of that, and then kind of went, oh, okay, and my like ADD brain wandered off to something else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, recently, I did. You mentioned, and I'm not going to get the name right. And of course, my my library hold on my phone is like, and it's gone. Um, I did read the book that you mentioned on Queen Amidala and her handmaidens. Just because you were like, oh, it's got a lot of costuming stuff in it. And I was like, yes, I will read that. Um, and I actually really liked that one, too. But I think that's that's the most recent sort of modern novel that I've gotten in, gotten myself into. <laughs> okay, okay. So, um, obviously, a lot, I mean, that that really, that's a lot of coverage of at least old canon, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, I'm largely ignorant of, uh, at the moment, anyway. Although I, I'm I'm getting badgered about that, I think that's probably that is going to have project. to be the next thing. Yeah, after <laughs> after this one's done, uh, so we'll see how that that goes. Um, okay, so so obviously, uh, it 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 meant enough to you that that you've followed lots of it. You've mentioned that there are specific things and moments and books and and things that have really stood out to you. Um, so I kind of it gives people a sense that you, you this is not just a thing you're like oh th- these are really great costumes like you you care about these stories you care about these characters to a certain extent as well, um, so uh, but I would like to talk about uh, the book yeah. so um, I I also have a copy of it and uh, although I have not finished reading every single word of it I have I have read all of the legends for all of the images and I've read quite a bit of the introductory material to each section. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that I had no idea that it was going to be this text dense, uh, honestly, when I started, because I seriously was expecting like a coffee table book with here's a really big picture and a couple words about it. But no, it's it, there's a lot of detailed information. in it. Honestly, for a costume book like this is like just overall, this is a surprising number of words, because I think I told you at one point I have sort of the the Star Trek extended universe version of this and it's mostly like here's so-and-so in his costume look at the pictures and then you like turn the page and it's like here's so-and-so number two in their costume look at the pretty pictures so the fact that this had so much text i was like this is amazing (laughs) this is this is as a as a costumer and as someone like interested sort of in 
the thought process behind costumes like this is what you want and i i know you said it already i always like to throw out there like i'm not a designer um but i live sort of i live with designers i work for designers enough that sort of being able to figure out how they think and why they think is actually always a fun game for me like why did you decide to do that like what's does this mean something does it not um and that was one of the things that sort of throughout this book kind of struck me is that there's they talk at one point about the Greeblies, um, which is, I think that's page 35. It's like the big like side page. Um, and then I guess in Star Wars world, and it's interesting because as I was getting into more and more into costuming and sort of realizing that people like made movie costumes for themselves, which I haven't done yet, uh, but I had delusions at some point of like, I was going to make a Zam Wessel costume and she was the bounty hunter, the like alien bounty hunter in purple that shows up in episode two um i was like i'm gonna make that costume and i didn't realize that there were like whole groups of people out there in the world that did that but the first time i i heard about greeblies which is the term that they use for sort of like random bits you stick on a costume was when people were talking about her costume um and i didn't know at that point whether it was like a star wars specific thing or whether it was just like i don't know like cosplayers talk like this or like where that word came from. So it was interesting in this book to see like, oh no, like that's actually a thing that sort of one of the folks on Star Wars started. I think they attribute it to Lucas that they say like, oh, Lucas said, you know, like, oh, just put put a greebly on it. Like put a bird on it, like put a greebly on it. Um, but it's interesting to me because that stick a greebly on it is a very, one very specific way of sort of costume designing Whereas the other one is sort of the Jenny Beaven school of designing. And she was the woman that did, um, I mean, she did a whole bunch, but like the one she's sort of most known for at this point is Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, and every quote unquote sort of greebly that she put on a costume, like she or the director or the actor had to have a reason for. So like an actor could look at the bits of their costume and go like, this is my breathing apparatus. And, you know, this is how I pay for things. And like, this is part of a weapon and all of that. Whereas like Lucas and his team was kind of like, I don't know, it needs some buttons. Give him some buttons somewhere, like stick something to it. Uh, it's funny that you say buttons specifically because it's mentioned throughout uh, the book that that it was very clear that Lucas wanted no visible fastenings in any, yeah. in any of the costumes which I, I, you know, hadn't been a thing I'd really thought about watching the films. Like I, it's not, you know, I, I, they have, everybody has a look, but I never really went, you know, there's no zippers or no buttons or whatever. And it's, uh, but, and I think that's one of those interesting things that you get into with like science fiction is that everyone sort of knows how like buttons and zippers work. So if you want to make it sort of othering, you have to like get rid of those sort of familiar things. Um, and I think that showed up in that, that book about uh, Queen Amidala, too, and that they never talk about, like, buttoning her into a dress or, like, fastening her into a dress. They always talk about sealing her into a dress, um, which was a little weird. I kept trying to figure out, like, are we shrink wrapping? Are we, like, bonding? Like, you're sealing her in, but how? Um, well, are fully realizing, you know, I'm the only person on the planet that that would, that would stop and think about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Greeblies specifically um, because it was something that I actually took a note of because I thought that's a really strange term. And I tried to search on it and I couldn't find anything under the spelling very, very much under the spelling that was used in this book. 
but I saw that that were, were other references to it using a slightly different spelling, which I did not note. But it is a like apparently this is a, I guess a term that some people use, but I I had never heard it before. Yeah. Um, well, and the props guy in this book is saying like, oh, it's Lucas's fault. So I'm inclined to blame George Lucas, but <laughs> it may or may not actually be him. Sure. So, uh, so I guess the, the kind of the follow-up question to that then is so that then it's not like an industry standard term, like you, when you're doing stuff with costuming, do you, do you refer to anything as a creeply or did you know the word prior to the book? It's not in theater and I haven't yet worked movies. If anyone out there has movie connections, feel free to hook me up. Cause I want to try that. Um, but I haven't worked movies. It's not a term we use in theater. Um, I think in theater, there's sort of a, so the difference a lot between movie and theater costumes is that theater costumes have to last forever. Um, and in this book, one of the things they, they talk about a lot is like the stormtrooper armor was not, maybe not, not well made, but it wasn't made to last for the length of a movie. Um, whereas in theater, like everything has to run for at least two weeks, if not more. And you may or may not sort of get, enough downtime to like remake it or make a new one or anything like that or on movies it's like oh if we're not shooting on this person in this costume like we can take it we can like completely revamp it or or re like make it nice again and then kind of give it back um and movies also they usually have like four or five of everything at least especially if it's something that's going to go through um like distressing like if the person is you know, like rolling down a muddy hill, they'll have four or five versions of like the rolling down a muddy hill outfit. Sometimes they'll even like pre-mud them. Um, so they'll have, you know, like I rolled halfway down the hill and then they'll have like a, a muddier suit that's like, I rolled all the way down the hill. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that sort of lets movies do kind of stick on greebly things a lot more. And like that may be why they had to come up for a term with it or a term for it. Um, because in theater, there's a lot less, I think, of the like, oh, we're going to stick some stuff on unless it's in sort of very specific shows. And I think that theater also then lends itself to you have to know what it's for a lot more. Like I have to justify this choice to a director. It's not just sort of there for looks. And of course, these are giant sort of giant oversimplifications. There have definitely been shows where it's like, well, we're going to put trim on that just because I want to put trim on that and I'm the designer. Um mm -hmm. But my guess would be that there is sort of a movies to to theater breakdown. I would call stuff like this either like bits or doohickeys or something like that. And I think they do say that one of the other guys sort of backstage, even on Star Wars, called them kibbles and bits. <laughs> um, but as far as I know, there's not a there's not a like straight theatrical term for sort of things you stick on other things. Okay, okay. There's there's a, a bunch of random things I did notice as I was kind of going through the book. Uh, one of them being uh, there's a photo of Leia with what looks like it could be a communicator or something on her wrist, and they mm -hmm. specifically call out the fact that it's not uh, it's not a communicator, or at least it wasn't going to be used that way because she used something else that she was holding to communicate mm -hmm. instead. Uh, I, I don't know if you caught that picture and that. I reference. did. I saw that one, and it looks almost like an Apple Watch. Yeah, I was my thought when I saw it was, oh, it's Leia's Fitbit, obviously. Yeah. And it's crazy how like things that that I mean, I think that's not the the only time I've seen that like in a sci-fi movie where it's like, oh, and we put this thing on them just so it looked cool and then all of a sudden someone will go back 
you know, 40 years later and find that picture and be like, wait, this is that thing we've got now. So it's, it's crazy how sometimes like costume people can predict the future without knowing they're predicting the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the other thing, uh, so I, of course, you know, I've heard a lot in the past about Ralph McQuarrie's drawings. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that did surprise me a bit, since he was not obviously the costume designer for these films, uh, was how much of an influence uh, those drawings and some of the the paintings that were done. Of course, the paintings, uh, I think, are a little bit more iconic and well-known. Like, I've definitely seen, like, the the iconic uh, stormtrooper holding a lightsaber picture. Mm -hmm that you know is sort of this is sort of what they're going to look like that 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 picture has been shown a lot in various contexts yeah. online and whatnot uh but definitely was was surprised to see you know he he had that much of an influence on the actual look of the film and obviously then you know from all the other drawings and things they then took that and, and did iterated on it a lot um the thing I was actually curious about, because I see, you know, they have this process where you start with these these original drawings that they did, then they moved to doing their own drawings as the costumer folks, um, and then revised those and worked on those over time. And of course, they they mentioned several times also throughout the book that uh, kind of knew when something was locked in, mm -hmm. when it had a name locked written on it in uh, in Lucas's handwriting of the name of the character, like that's when you know that this is yep. a this that's is when a, you know it's that, made it, yeah, yeah. So. Um, I was curious because obviously there's a lot of iteration. There's a lot of uh, back and forth. Uh, sounds like Lucas had a lot of individual input and, and opinions. Mm -hmm. um, is that how, how can you speak to how similar or how different that is? Obviously, theater is different than film. But can yeah. you speak to how that's different from what you're used to dealing with? Um, a lot of it sort of depends on kind of the rapport the whole team has. Because I've definitely worked on costumes in places where the... I've ne I never I've never met the designer, um, or I never met the director. I know that I know the designer, or I've met the designer in person, um, and it's sort of the the designs come down from above, and like this is what it is. Uh, usually, that's bigger places, or that's places where I've only sort of I'm only sort of jobbing in. I'm doing like one show with them, or one or two shows with them, or it's you know a big name designer, and they're doing three other shows at the same time. Um, most of the smaller places that I've worked, the designer is sort of in the room with you. And so there can be more discussion between like me as a person who's building the costume and the designer. Uh, usually as we start, as we sort of start the whole build process, there is a sit down conversation of, all right, you've drawn this. What does this mean to you versus how am I interpreting it? Um, so I could look at a line and be like, all right, is this a seam or is this like a wrinkle in the fabric that you're showing me? So, you know, if I'm doing a giant skirt, is it a skirt that has different panels in it? Or are you showing me this is how the skirt is falling around the body, not this is where there's two pieces of fabric put together. Um, so on sort of mid-range to smaller shows, a lot of times like I can get information like that from the designer I generally don't see the directors at all um, on really small shows or on shows where I've got a really good rapport with a designer. And I've got some friends who are designers that I can do with, uh, do this with, we call it uh, it's either communal designing or like tag teaming the brain where 
they'll come in and be like, hey, I've got this. It needs something else. What do you think? And I, as the person who has to be, you know, elbows deep in the fabric making it, will go, oh, I've always wanted to try this. Or like, hey, wouldn't this look cool with, you know, like a giant sideways collar? Um, and obviously they, as the designer, always get sort of final say in that. Um, and a lot of times they will then again have to sort of run it up the pecking order to the director and say, hey, are you okay with this? Um, but if it's someone that like I know or, or they trust me or something like that, like a lot of times I can have a little bit of input in sort of what goes on. Um, but for the most part, by the time you get down to it's in the shop and it's being built, the, the people above my level, so the designer and the director have kind of made the choice already. Most of the time, what I get to do is choose, like, where does the trim go? And, you know, how long is this? Unless it's a really specific thing. Like, how long does this coat? Um, because some of that stuff is what we look at in fittings, too. So when we do mock-ups, when we do sort of a first trial version of something, um, a lot of my job in kind of shaping what ultimately things will look like is, you know, if I stop this four inches below the hip, it makes you look wide across the hips. But if I stop at six inches below the hips, it's a lot more flattering. So that goes back to kind of knowing, knowing the designer and knowing the director and figuring out what they want. Like, do they want everyone to look wider or do they want them to be sort of small and slim and compact? Um, but mm -hmm. that's really in sort of fit and shape is a lot of where my, my input on things that ultimately make it the stage come in. So when you're doing these rough drafts of costumes, it sounds like mm -hmm. um, you're, I'm assuming you're not using like the real actual expensive fabrics and whatever. You're just using like uh, cheap, cheaper, stuff. thinner stuff to and try it's, and it's get funny, the shape it's, right. It's great. You mentioned that because I actually had just happened to flip through the, the book and found page 131. They actually show some of the original mock-ups. We call them the rough drafts or we call them mock-ups um, for Luke's Jedi outfits in Jedi in uh, Return of the Jedi. And I saw that and went, oh my God, those are mock-ups. Oh my God, Lucasfilm saves their mock-ups. And was like, this is, this. and I was just, I did sort of the like squee hands because that's one of those things that like you never see, you never see the mock-ups for sort of big fancy stuff because no one wants to admit that like there's this whole process beforehand. They always want you to think, oh, it springs, you know, fully formed in an amazing format, like into being. Um, Someone so just magically sits down and sews the whole costume exactly right with the right sizing and everything for the, for the yeah, actor. Just like the first, first time try. we're that good. Yeah. We're not, we definitely do like rough drafts of everything. Um, and it's, it's usually, we use a really cheap fabric. It's usually a cotton muslin, which if you go to, I think Joanne's, you can get for something like four ninety nine a yard, which for fabric is darn cute and cheap. Um, and I don't think they ever said in here sort of how many mock-ups they went through for Luke. And honestly, like, if you're dealing with someone, like, if you're a returning costumer on a movie like this and you've dealt with, you know, like, Mark Hamill's body before, you can probably get it 75% to 90% of right the first try as long as mm -hmm. he, you know, hasn't suddenly gone out and, like, bulked up um, or something like that. So these mock-ups, may, they may have been the only mock-ups they did for this if everyone mm -hmm. sort of liked what they looked like and they fit him well. Um, this could have, these could have been, you know, one of many. More, more about getting the shape and, or the, the style and the, the way it's going to look visually versus like making sure it fits him. It's a little bit of both. Um, at least in my experience that, especially cause Jedi was such a, it's, I mean, it's an action movie. So, and so he had to be able to like wander around and swing lightsabers and, you know, 
dive between things in a bunch of sand. There is an a, a, always an effort to make the actor as comfortable as possible, but then it also you have to find that sweet spot between looks like what the designer wants and actor can do what they need. Um, and that's one of those times that having sort of on movies, especially less so in in theater, on movies having multiple versions of the same costume with like slightly different bits to them um happens so it may be you know that luke's and i didn't i didn't see it in here i don't think they got quite that into detail on you know how many of them there were what they were all made out of but i wouldn't have been surprised if it's you know his undershirt for the action sequences was stretchy um with like a non-stretchy like tabard over it but then Anytime he was just standing around and looking majestic, he would have sort of the non-stretchy undershirt on. There's a lot of tricks like that that we wind up doing if we can just to help people out. <laughs> There's a lot of modernly, if you see, I know there are a lot of pictures of Chris Evans as Captain America floating around. And there are some that have, he's got this weird like mesh shirt on, um, but then he's got the Captain America arms, which is sort of the genius way to build that costume. And that since he has to, you know, throw and kick and jump and run and everything. What he's wearing with the mesh middle is the is basically the sleeve mount for his Captain America costume, so it comes in two pieces. Gotcha, gotcha. 